Good afternoon, and thank you for joining Simplify's Keeping It Simple, featuring Jim Bianco and hosted by Simplify's own Harley Bassman and Mike Green. Before we get started, I want to remind our audience that nothing said or yelled on today's show should be construed as investment advice. With that out of, out of the way, let's introduce our guest. Jim Bianco is president and macro strategist at Bianco Research, where he has been challenging consensus thinking since 1990. Jim's wide-ranging commentaries have addressed monetary policy, the intersection of markets and politics, the role of government in the economy, fund flows and positioning in financial markets, and most recently, the coming role of decentralized finance, or DeFi. But will he make it through the next hour without Mike and Harley arguing over inflation? We will soon find out. Over to you, Mike. Fantastic. Eric, thank you so much for introducing us. And Jim, thank you for joining Harley and I. Um, this is an exciting moment for Harley because we have brought an inflationista on to join Harley in his quest to extract an apology for me for supposed statements I made that said that inflation was transitory, meaning it would be done in two weeks. We obviously know that's not the case. Jim and Harley are wrong, but we're going to explore that over the course of this discussion. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It is going to be a lot of fun. We'll mostly get the chance to make fun of Harley and his terrible choice of product development on things like interest rate hedges. But what we're going to focus on first is this general idea of what is actually happening right now? What is causing the price behavior that we're seeing that's leading to this question that we're even entertaining, right? So the core question has been twofold. One is, is inflation going to retreat? And then the second question is, how should we expect that to impact interest rates, both at the front end in terms of policy, and I think what's been confusing, Harley in particular, but that's understandable, is at the back end, we've had rates actually rally over the last couple of months. We really have not been able to see much of an increase in the 10-year rate. It's certainly sitting way below levels that those who tend to believe that interest rates should reflect an inflationary condition would think. What, what do you think is going on? What's actually happening? Uh, let me put it in, um, <clears throat> in two terms. Let me start with the big picture. And this has been uh, the premise that I've been arguing for a long time. We had a pandemic, we had a shut a lockdown, and then we had a restart in the economy. If you go through human history, coming out of such an event, a pandemic like that, that you're going to get a profound and permanent change in human behavior. Now that I said that, that's not dystopian. It means that things are gonna be different. Things are different in the economy right now. Work from home is a real thing. We've, we were moving towards work from home at a pace of about half a percent a year more. We're working from home. We jumped ahead 30 percentage points in a quarter <coughs> in early 2020. So we've got basically, we're, we're 30 years ahead of where we, we should be. The consumption basket that we that we consume has changed as well. Maybe because we work from home a lot more, uh, we consume more things, less services. The economy needs to restructure. It is a post-pandemic economy. But instead of arguing about, instead of restructuring, we're arguing about whether it should restructure. There's still a lot of people that are waiting for the return of 2019. Stephen Ross, the owner of the Miami Dolphins and made his billions as in Manhattan real estate is confidently saying that people will return back to the office in a couple of years. So is Dave Solomon of Goldman Sachs. People are going to return back to the office in a couple of years. But meanwhile, a study 
in New York City said only 8% of offices are full-time right now. Everybody else is either fully remote or hybrid. Um, so we've got a big change that is producing frictions in the economy, that is producing problems in the economy that need to be worked out. One of those places that we're seeing it is in the supply chain. Uh, let me give you a quick example. We know about the stories about the bloated inventories that target in Walmart. Yeah, it's, it's obviously it's, some of it is a slowdown in the economy. People aren't buying as many things. But more to the point, if you dig down a little deeper and reading what they've been saying, when Omicron was receding in the spring, they knew everybody was coming back. We got to restock the shelves. Restock them with what? Well, put the same thing as on the shelves in the same proportions as we had in 2019. People ran into the stores, bought things in different proportions. The consumption basket changed. They are now starting to figure that out. This is not just, hey, the consumption basket changed. We have to change the supply chain. We have to change the manufacturing processes. We have to change the outputs that we are producing. And instead of getting about that, we're having an argument whether it's having, happening in the first place, that is leading to frictions and more inflation on the supply chain side. So I'm one that doesn't think that the supply chain will fix itself until we finally have a recognition that things have changed. On the demand side, let me give you a statistic from the OECD, the Organization of Economic, uh, I could, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. They harmonize a bunch of statistics. So they have a core inflation rate uh, for the developed countries, 30 of them. Highest core inflation rate in the developed world is in the United States. That is rare. Usually as the biggest economy in the developed world, we're always somewhere in the middle. We're never the lowest, we're never the highest. But since March of 21, we've been number one. Now, why have we been number? March of 21 is actually an interesting uh, point because that was the date the last stimulus checks went out. <clears throat> the San Francisco Fed has actually made me aware of this and pointed out that during the pandemic, they looked at all the OECD countries. One country had its uh, personal income, I was going to say disposable, personal income went up during the pandemic. One country, the United States. Yep. We deficit spent, we mailed out more money uh, than any other country so that people actually became wealthier as they sat at home. So what the San Francisco Fed has told us is roughly of the 8% inflation rate, you could argue two of it is the structural inflation that the Fed always targets. Three of it is the chronic supply chain problem. Three of it is also excess demand because we've, over, we've overstimulated our economy that's why we have the highest inflation rate. Europe, Australia, Japan, they have supply chain problems. They are impacted by the Ukrainian war. But why do we have the number one inflation rate? Because we also threw money out the window more than any other country. So these are the issues that we're dealing with, which is why I think that the inflation rate has been so chronic. It is not permanent. No inflation is. But once we get about correcting some of these problems, until we get about correcting these problems, then we're going to continue to have inflation. On the demand side, we don't have the federal government sending out money, but the People's Republic of California is sending out money. The People's Republic of Chicago is sending out universal basic income checks right now. So it's happening at the state and local level, not to the degree that we saw last spring, but we are still stimulating a lot. And that is also kind of keeping the inflation rate higher. Jim, so the 3%, so, wait, wait, the 3 uh, from the money given by the governments that, that's uh, increasing demand, 
Has that all been spent or is that money still kicking around that can contribute to inflation for a while longer? <clears throat> a lot of it has been spent. Um, the, the savings rates are back down to nearly pre-pandemic levels right now. Uh, that in all things being equal, that should start to really tail off in the next year or so, unless we find ways to continue to stimulate the economy. Uh, and we seem to be looking for ways to stimulate the economy. And I might say, the supply chain's getting in the way. I don't know if you heard this wonderful anecdote from a couple of weeks ago that the Biden administration was actually thinking about sending out gas cards to every American. But then they realized that each card needs a little chip in it. And because of the semiconductor shortage, they couldn't print up 50 million gas cards and send them out to everybody. So well, they California's have to find- gonna do it. California's yeah. gonna give up 400 bucks. Right, but you know what? They're gonna have a problem finding all the little, the semiconductors to put in all those cards in order to send them out. Uh, California is <laughs> taking California is taking the technological approach. They're just sending checks. Oh, okay. We're going old school, huh? Yeah, not really old school, but no, they're not sending out gas cards. They're, they're actually just sending out a nice check to everyone who has registered their car. Um, so this is actually really interesting, Jim, because Harley thought that you were an inflationista, but what you're actually describing is a shift in relative prices, right? This need to restructure the economy. That's not technically inflation, that's a shift in relative prices. It's designed to restructure the economy. So if, if that's what you're focused on, and, and by the way, the, the San Francisco Fed piece is one that I cite as well. I think it's a really well-written paper. I encourage people to, to take a look at it. It's somewhere on my Twitter thread. Um, you know, we should actually oh, probably make it available. Um, and, and it's an excellent piece. It also complements your earlier statements, reflect a piece that came out of UC Davis. I believe it was even in, in like April or May of 2020 that highlighted the historical dynamics of, of a thousand years worth of analysis of pandemics that what you end up with is significantly lower real rates in the aftermath of a pandemic. That need to restructure as you're describing it is very tangible and very real. And I love the description that you're using where you're saying we're spending our time debating whether these things are occurring rather than getting around to it. Now, clearly, the right approach, if we need to make investments and restructure the economy, is to hike interest rates and cause a recession, right? Yeah, well, it's, it's not. See, the problem with the Fed is their policy is being dictated by last year's mistake. Last year's mistake was the word transitory. And they, got, they should have been moving probably 18 months ago, easily 12 months ago. And then they're playing a giant catch up. So as I like to say, the mistake the Fed made was last year using transitory. This year is the consequence of that mistake. But to the Fed's defense, we're in this box right now that we've got this inflation problem. Let's not dismiss the idea that inflation affects 100% of the population. It impacts Elon Musk. It impacts people on public assistance. It impacts everybody in between. A recession does not impact the entire economy. It impacts some people greatly. They lose their jobs. So the idea is if you had given the choice between a garden variety recession, if we could define that, and chronic inflation, chronic inflation is worse. And so they have to deal with that. And it seems like what Chairman Paul has been saying is that if we have to risk lower asset prices, or maybe want lower asset prices as a way to curb demand, and or 
we have to risk a recession. Well, then we're going to do that. And that's been something I've been arguing that the Fed is not going to stop until they see signs that inflation is behind us. Over the weekend, Nick Timoros, the um, economics uh, correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, considered the Fed mouthpiece, basically wrote a piece that the Fed is also now worried that, you know, the the narrative on Wall Street is we're going to front load all the rate hikes. Maybe we do 100 in July, 75 in September, and then we're going to hit the terminal rate, the peak rate by December, January. We're five or six months away from the Fed rate hikes to be done. And then they're going to start cutting rates in 23. Well, what he said in that piece was the Fed says when they start cutting rates, they don't want to be in a stop going world, right? Raise rates a lot, slow the economy down, kill demand, inflation comes down, step on the gas by cutting rates. And then a year later, we're back to 9% inflation. And then they got to wash, rinse and repeat the whole cycle all over again, that they might stick around with higher rates until they think that inflation is slayed for good before they start cutting rates. So I get it. (laughs) If you're given the option between a recession and inflation, inflation is worse. But we should have never been in this option in the first place. If we had recognized the change in the economy, if we had recognized the insipid inflation that was coming 18 months ago, we wouldn't have been waiting, watching and the economy is, you know, rocket off to 9% inflation. And look, the ECB hasn't even started yet at the, at the rate we're going. They're so far behind as well. Let me go so into that. Use a, go, go ahead, Char, Go ahead, Harley. I'm I sorry. I was going to say, I mean, I mean, we agree a lot. Uh, people disagree with. I mean, I wrote about this exact thing in my commentary that I came out with a few days ago. I, I would say that, that the uh, top 20% and bottom you know, 20% don't care about inflation. The middle do. Uh, so you have 60% of the world being unhappy with inflation, whereas if inflation goes from 3.6 to 5.6, you know, that's 2%. So we agree. I disagree about the transitory part. I don't think Powell actually believed that. I think he was kind of pinned down by politics because they kept dragging their feet on nominating him and then voting on him. And he kind of knew that if he was to go and jump the gun and raise rates or start QT, he'd probably not be nominated because the left wanted you know, someone else. So I think he's going to held in check by politics. And then circling ahead to the next concept is, if you think about ego, hubris, these are the great destroyers of mankind. This is what the Greeks wrote about in Shakespeare. Um, that's really where we are with Powell. If you think about what are his choices, he could be Arthur Burns, who was the um, Fed guy in the 70s, with, and, and Nixon kind of beat him up and said, don't raise rates. Um, and he didn't. And he's now known as the guy that kind of let it get out of the, out of the genie bottle. Or you could be Volcker, who I guess was a dog at the time, but is now a hero. He's going to want to be Volcker. He is not going to want his name remembered on his tombstone as, you know, Arthur Burns Redux. And I think people are really kind of missing the point here. There's almost no economics here. He will not let inflation be attached to his name. And therefore, he's going to go and keep taking this up well about what people think. Uh, to make sure that he, he'd rather go down as the guy that caused a recession. Um, I think I think I think it's more important to keep the ego concept here than the money concept. So I think that's <laughs> yeah. actually I, I think that's a remarkable statement, Harley, and I think it actually explains a lot of the disagreement that you and I encounter. So when I say that the inflation is transitory and the Fed is making a mistake, it's clear that you think I'm saying the Fed is going to reverse course, right? What what you're highlighting is is that Jerome Powell's ego is encouraging him to pursue the wrong policies. Why is it wrong? 
because it doesn't solve the problem. I mean, you have, you, you, you're, you're bringing on the Marie Antoinette economics where, you know, you, you want to go and inflation is inflation. This, this is a distinction without a difference. Prices are going up and people have less. I mean, they, they can't afford stuff. I mean, the fact that, is, is there some joke about like three guys go to a desert island, one's an economist, and they said like, imagine a boat. Um, you're saying the same thing. You're saying inflation doesn't count because it's driven by, it's not driven by money, it's driven by supply. It's still inflation. No, but that's, so that's, that's part of the issue, Harley. That's actually why I specify when Jim and I, are, when Jim was talking that he was describing a shift in relative prices that actually requires investment. The dynamics of inflation do matter. In the same way, I wouldn't say, oh, Harley's sick. Let's just give him a tour of chemotherapy, right? That's not a solution. That's not, you know, I haven't actually properly diagnosed. You have a pimple and I'm giving you chemotherapy. That's not particularly helpful. I mean, well, if, I could, if I could back up a quick second, Harley, on your earlier comment, um, I agree that to some extent, especially when you got into early 22, Paul was really hamstrung by politics because one January 31st came and went and he was not um, voted on by the Senate. The Senate had an effective veto over him because at any moment, if he displeasured the Senate, they could just walk down to the floor and guess what, Jay, we just don't have 50 votes to get you over the finish line and you're done. And so there was a lot of that. And of course, uh, Biden nominated him very late. It was nearly Thanksgiving. He was getting to November as opposed to August, where it's usually done. Right. But let me back you up, too. Um, getting to my point about, you know, the relative prices that Mike was talking about. Um, in, in 2019, the Fed had this thing called Fed Listens, where they had this tour that yep. they went around and they were listening to people. And the conclusion that they came with was what they referred to as the new framework. And the new framework, all that meant was they were going to put an emphasis on getting the unemployment rate down as low as possible, and that they were going to run the economy hot. They weren't worried about inflation. They were more worried about unemployment. And I would, to be charitable to the Fed, and, and maybe I'm not being charitable, maybe it was right, in 2019, that might have actually been a good, a sound policy for the Fed to uh, put to forth. But then the pandemic came, and they didn't even announce that policy to August, September of 2020, when they first implemented it. And so what they essentially wound up doing was they took a pre-pandemic problem, applied it to the post-pandemic world. And in order to say, our focus has to be to get the unemployment rate down when inflation, <coughs> excuse me, when inflation started moving up, that's when they started to use the word transitory throughout 2021. So it was, I think the politics came into it at the end, but at the beginning, as I say, the original sin of this was that they, their, their new framework that they instituted in August and September of 2020, that that was, a, that was the old cycle's answer, but it wasn't going to work very well in the new cycle. I and I, I, I think that's actually- war. I agree. Mm -hmm. So I, I think Jim's actually hitting on an important point, and we'd actually seen this dynamic, right? So the underlying inflation conditions, the core inflation components had already risen to 2.4%, as we were looking at that time period post the Trump tax cuts, right? So basically 2018, 2019, we were running higher levels of inflation than we had run at any point in this cycle. We also got exactly to Jim's point, unemployment down to levels that were very, very low. The question that I guess I would, so I, I'm actually extremely sympathetic to the idea that we took policies that we thought were appropriate for the 
post-GFC era, we began to deploy those and those were becoming inflationary and then we supercharged them. I'm actually not interested in, in disagreeing with those components. And some of that, Harley, you had actually hit on the inflationary dynamics that were inevitable as the millennials began to age into the labor force, right? So their demand for houses was beginning to pick up. Their demand for many of these things was already in place. We were beginning to see a slight uptick in births, et cetera. Those components exploded into the pandemic. And we saw a dramatic change in the real value associated with single family ownership in the suburbs, for example. Right now, how quickly we should have begun to remove some of the stimulus that brought credit spreads, in particular mortgage spreads, to historic lows in the midst of an incredible outward shift in aggregate demand. I mean, that's almost exactly the right de description of, you know, or, or almost exactly the wrong policy that you should be pursuing once it became clear that we had actually managed to somewhat restore stability to the income stream. Okay. I, I, I'm not gonna argue about inflation anymore with you. I, I mean, you know, who are you gonna believe? Me or your lying eyes. So I'm done with that. Jim, I have a question for you. The curve is clearly, yelling recession either right now or tomorrow or sometime soon but you know the curve's yelling recession here's the question i have for you though a, a a recession technically is two quarters of negative gdp and we've had a negative one first quarter and it looks like we're going to get one you know this month announced so in theory we would be does this really count when we have inflation at eight, nine percent, because we really have going on here is we might have a real unemployment, real GDP of negative one, negative two. We have a nominal though of positive six when you compare that versus the eight percent inflation rate. Is 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 a nominal six G GDP? Is that really a recession? And I'm really wondering if, if we're kind of taking the wrong message over here. I, I'm not sure it counts as a recession. The economy is growing. So what's the disconnect over here? Right, so first of all, a recession is whatever the National Bureau of Cycle Dating Committee says is a recession. Right. Or as CNN said uh, about two weeks ago, whatever old, eight old white guys decide that is a recession. That's what a recession technically is. Yeah. Now that I've said that, the people use the two negative quarters and they go out to say it doesn't necessarily have to be two negative quarters, but real quick, there's never been two negative consecutive quarters that weren't in a recession um, all the way back through time. So if we wind up with a negative quarter in the second quarter, remember the first quarter was minus 1.6. The Atlanta Fed GDP now is at minus 1.2 for the second quarter. For it to miss by more than 1.2%, meaning that it was too low by more than 1.2%, would actually be an outside an outsized miss for it. So odds are, unless something changes, we're probably looking at a, at least a, a negative quarter in the second quarter or very, <coughs> or very, very close uh, to a negative quarter. To your point about nominal growth versus uh, real growth, you're right that we measure the economy on a real basis. So the nominal economy has to jump over the inflation rate in order to not print, it, print negative numbers. We have an example of this. We have the example of 1974. 1974, there was a supply shock too. There was the Arab oil embargo. And we had at least nominally at the time, uh, the inflation rate hit 12% during that period. And from, uh, from the spring of 73 to the spring of 75, the NBER has, de has designated that period as a recession. The first 10 months of that recession, 
all had positive payroll growth. We saw this also in 1981, the first three months of that recession had positive payroll growth. And in 1969, when we had a recession too, the first two months had positive payroll growth. So there are examples that you can have positive nominal growth, but still be in a recession. And so, yes, people ask me this question differently, but it's the same thing you're asking, right? How can we have a recession if we just printed 370,000 jobs? Uh, the answer is because it's not enough to over, it's not enough to get nominal growth higher than the inflation rate. So you have negative real growth. And so, yeah, you can have negative real growth and that can be the definition of a recession. Whether <coughs> the NBER decides that that is a recession, well, we'll wait until they make their decision. Usually on average, they, they make these calls about a year after mm -hmm. it actually starts. <laughs> And they, it, and they recognize, I know, I know Bob Gordon, Northwestern professor fairly well, and he's been on the committee since 1978. And I know that he'll probably, he won't say it out loud, but I'll say it for him. Thank God we wait a year because that means next summer. So if we had to make the call now in front of the midterm elections, you know, everybody would be throwing slings and arrows at us. The perfect time is about eight months after the midterm and about 14 or 15 months before the uh, presidential election to make it as least political as possible. Mike, could you pull up slide nine? I mean, this, this, this is my conundrum over here. Um, it, it is that I think I remember from, from MBA that there's supposed to be a relationship between nominal GDP and nominal uh, interest rates, because yes. in theory, one is the cost of capital to build a toy, and then what you get out of the, out of the goody is the GDP. And um, if we, have, we, we could easily have nominal clicking along at, um, uh, you know, six, seven, you know, um, eight, um, and, and still be in a recession, still have negative GDP. I, I don't see how I, how I you know, deal with a 3% tenure note with a 6% nominal GDP. Am I, am I crazy here or, or just uh, I'm playing with numbers? Look, we, we looked back to the 1950s and we found that every rate hike campaign ends with, positive, with, a, with a positive real rate. <laughs> so you, you're right. We're minus six and a half now. Now the inflation rate will probably come down. It's not gonna stay at 9% forever. I just don't think it's going to get to two or three anytime soon, but, uh, right. but we're going to have to see rates go up. But if I was to give you one thing about this chart, nominal GDP versus the 10-year note, nominal is trailing 12 months. Interest rates are supposed to be projection about the future. What yeah. we should have is a metric that no one knows, expected nominal GDP. So the interest rates are kind of telling us what they expect nominal GDP to be. Uh, but what we're measuring it against is what it actually had been in the past. It's a lot like looking at when we look at trailing earnings versus forward earnings. It's kind of the concept is, is very similar to that. And then you have to throw in, and I'll, I'll go off on a, a little tangent here, Harley. Um, you have to throw in the state of the bond market right now. Uh, you know, after 14 years of QE, the lack of liquidity in the bond market. And I've, I've minced no words about this. I think that the bond market essentially is dysfunctional and has been for several months. You know, it is not completely dysfunctional. I've likened it to, you know, the old car that's, you know, billowing black smoke and leaking oil on the road, but it still gets me home, but it's not in a good place. That's where the, the bond market is. So a lot of what you're seeing in the bond market too might also be that we've got some real structural problems 
in the bond market. And I'll quote Josh Younger on the Odd Lots podcast with Tracy Alloway and Joe Weisenthal from earlier this week, where he brought up a very provocative line that maybe the, the entire system of primary dealers and the Treasury Borrowing Auction Committee and deciding how that they, they were going to fund the U.S. government, which is a relic from the 1950s that hit its popularity in the 1980s, that that architecture just doesn't work anymore in 2022 with $30 trillion of debt, and that we should start looking at a different architecture. So part of the problem with the bond market might also be that it is somewhat dysfunctional. A way that I've argued that it's dysfunctional is the total returns are some of the worst that we've ever seen. That's a function, you know this better than me, as the convexity median. That's a function, uh, function of low, you know, low interest rates leading to longer durations because of positive convexity. That's why you've got such huge total return losses. But if you sum it all up, interest rates are supposed to be telling us something about forward expected um, nominal GDP. Are they really telling us that we're going to have nominal GDP in the 3 to 4% range? Because if so, and we're going to have inflation in the 6 to 8% range, we're going to throw up some terribly negative real GDP numbers and terribly negative real growth numbers. They might even start to approach what we saw during the Great Recession in 2008. But that would be very surprising then to maintain those levels of inflation. Yes, it would. Because if, if what the market is, what the market could be telling us is that if we do have that level of growth, that low level of nominal growth with that level of inflation, that should break the back of the inflation demand and bring it down. And that's to that end, that's one of the things that people have been talking about. Uh, Bill Dudley, the former president of the New York Fed, wrote an op-ed on Bloomberg in April. If the stock market doesn't go lower, down, the Fed might have to lower it. And he, you know, they used the euphemism of tightening financial conditions that they want to try and create a reverse wealth effect to try and get people to stop spending as much money to bring down the inflation rate. That's another way that they're trying to do it. But you're right. If, if the bond market, despite its fun dysfunctionality, if it's right and it's telling us we're a three or 4% nominal world, then yeah, we're probably going to really break inflation badly. Of course, it's going to become at a much big, it's going to come at a lot of pain because it's going to come at a serious recession and that that might be what it's projecting as well. Yeah. Isn't that a more, I mean, this is, this is kind of the interesting point though, right? Because when we look at the bond market and we say the bond market is broken or we say that the bond market has been permanently corrupted by the dynamics of QE, I'm not sure we have any evidence of that. I mean, what, what are we actually looking at other than a disconnect between current inflation levels and one year forward inflation expectations that have skyrocketed on the back of any number of reasons why? It doesn't seem irrational for people to have those expectations after having been so badly burned in the last year. What's the evidence that the bond market's actually broken? Well, <laughs> you know, if we start with the move index, and we're talking to the creator here at the move index as well, I mean, it hit 155 last week. That was just off of the peak that it hit in March of 2020, and one of the five or six highest levels that we've seen in the 30 plus year history of it. Now, for those not familiar, the move index, think of it as the VIX for the bond, mar for the bond market. So the volatility measures, the implied volatility measures in the bond market are extraordinary right now. They're at what, if you want me to put it, they're at an 80 vol for the VIX. That's where they're implying as well. 
The quote depths numbers, a lot of other problems with the bond market are showing up. The, the realized volatility in the bond market is very high. I, I've been remarking to people that I work with in the last 36 hours or so, you know, every, every hour and a half, I see a 10, 12 basis point move one direction or the other in the um, 10 year yield. Boy, you know, if this wasn't July of 2022, this would be a big deal. But today it's now just Thursday is what that is. So the bond market is exhibiting a lot of problems of extraordinary volatility and a real lack of liquidity right now. Now that might be on the trading aspect, but I think cumulatively that leads to a market that is under a lot of stress, will remain under a lot of stress. The total return losses just add to it. And there is where I think the problems are in the bond market. Now you could argue, well, you know, it, that doesn't mean that the answer has to be a negative 1% rate that would be completely out of line or a 12% rate that could be completely out of line. But it is not functioning, I don't think, as well as it could be. So I, I would just point out that, you know, that type of move in the move index makes perfect sense if we actually put it into the quantity of change that we're talking about, particularly at the front end of the curve. Right? I mean, the Fed is talking about hiking rates by 75 basis points. These are moves that they haven't made for over 20 years. If I go back to the 1990s, when they behaved in that manner, they hiked in 50 basis increments, and in some cases in 75 basis increments, we had move at same levels. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that we did. <clears throat> but back then, what we had was we had high volatility. We didn't have the accompanied um, liquidity problems, and we didn't have the accompanied loss problems that we've got, um, that we've seen right now. So yes, in you know all things being equal, the move should be elevated, but it is at I mean you got to go back to like March 9th of 2020 when everybody was breathing into a paper bag that the bond market was about to just completely convulse and lock up. That's the move is about at those levels. Or Mike, it was at least two. last week. What's that? Have Mike pull up chart number two if you can. I, I can, and I apologize to people in advance that I'm working off of a laptop at the Denver airport. So we're, we're, we're keeping the, the kiss on the road, even though we're not labeling it as such. Um, no, so this is actually a perfect illustration of this, right? We have been at these levels repeatedly in history. It just feels unusual in the context of everything else that's happened. Right. Although that chart's a little out of date. We're we were very close to that uh, March 20 high just a few days ago before we backed off a, a bit. But no, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's right, Jim. We, we hit 207 in, 20, in March, 2020. We, we, we peaked at about 140 recently. Um, He's right. But I mean, yes, we, 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 it's, it's a high number. It's a very high number. Jim, I'm, I'm switching topics for a second over here. Mike and I, uh, we do agree upon a few things. Um, and one of them is demographics, I think, uh, that, that, are, that are important. And, and I think we would, you know, we both have discussed that the idea of the, the inflation of the 70s was really a lot about the pig and the python of the boomers going through the system, getting married, forming households, you know, having a baby, having to buy a house, buy a car, buy a washing machine. And they're buying these goods and services from the World War II generation that is demographically smaller as well as having been kind of killed. Um, and thus you had this. And then if you follow through the concept as they aged and the labor force growth rate shrank, you had inflation and rates come down also. Could we argue there was like a similar idea right now because the millennials, they get married older, they have kids older. So maybe there's a seven year, eight year difference between you know uh, my kids and, and my generation. 
And the, the, on the other hand, you have the boomers retiring. Uh, I mean, this you know, kind of, I guess, uh, the missing people, missing 5 million, maybe they're not missing. Maybe they made enough money in the stock market and they're kind of done because the Fed helped them get there and they're not going to come back. Um, is it possible we could be seeing this right now with millennials having this growing demand side and the supply of goods and services from boomers is reducing and, and therefore this thing doesn't go away in, in six months? Or, or, sure. or let me add one more wrinkle on there, right? Which is the older generation now has a significantly higher cost associated with going to work. There is a novel virus. The, the vaccine doesn't really work. And the cost of actually going to work is significantly higher than it was before. Yes. And, you know, you could throw into that, you throw into that mix some, some changes too with reshoring is now becoming a, an issue. Um, immigration, um, we, you know, I think there's going to probably be after the midterm elections, a, a slowing of the immigration. I know that the, a lot of people are coming in, but that's largely unskilled labor that's been pouring into the country and they're not really going to solve that problem. So we could be seeing another kind of demographic move that could help you know, keep the inflation rate elevated because the great equalizer was supposed to be globalization. It was supposed to be that didn't matter what our demographics were, we could go make the stuff in China or make it in Vietnam or Indonesia. But that might be changing right now uh, because people are starting to think differently. Uh, you know, the story that Intel is trying to make fab plants in Arizona and in Columbus, Ohio, and they're trying to move production back in the United States for the first time in God knows how long. So when you add that up, all of a sudden now, the demographic situation becomes a lot bigger problem than we think. And we haven't even touched on the demographic situation in places like China or Japan, or even Europe <coughs> as well. They've got the same problems, maybe more so in China with the, you know, the toll that the one child policy has taken on their country after 40 years. I know they've they got rid of it about six or seven years ago. Too late. But yeah, well, yeah, but it was yeah, exactly. It was too late. But um, I want to get back. You you were describing the demand. We have the two, three, and three. The demand is the the helicopter money, and and the supply might be other. The risk is blowing up Ukraine, and thus it, that's been going to be resolved soon. That everything will be good. It will go back to Mike's transitory idea. Can't we argue that 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 the boomer is not going back to work for whatever reason, Mike? and the millennials forming households, which is what they do at a later age, that this by itself could you know, keep the supply demand imbalance out of whack domestically alone. Like, so I, I, unfortunately though, the data indicates the opposite, right? So the millennials that have foregone household formation have gotten to the point that they're not having kids. Yes, they're having the few kids they have much, lo much later, but their fertility rates have collapsed. They're still going to, I mean, they're still going to demand stuff though. And, and, and they're, no, unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing is their real incomes are shrinking. We're seeing their real income. Or, 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 no, or it does not matter if you look at it on a per capita basis. The usual average real weekly earnings are falling precipitously. Okay. If you want to go to chart 17 and 18, Mike, but let's not do that. We'll argue that this later, later on. Uh, well, Jim is, is here being our good guest. Jim, when, how does this resolve in the next, is it, is it resolving in the next six, 12 months or is this a, a longer term situation here? What, what do you mean by what is resolving in the next six or 12 I, I mean, months? I guess, Mike, we could talk about, maybe we want to pull the poll up. I mean, sure. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great point. So let's actually try to establish an element of a baseline. Um, Olga, if you could bring up the poll 
And let's put this up. So the core of this question is, where do we think inflation is going to print on January, which is gonna be the release of the December CPI? Is it gonna be under 3%, three to 5%, five to 7% or Zimbabwe? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, look, we all agree that inflation will come down because prices cure prices. Um, but I mean, you know, everything's transitory. Life is transitory. We're going to be dead soon enough. So it's, it's really a matter of when, you know, I'm not saying you're wrong, Mike. I'm just saying that you're too early. And I think if we do have a, you know, 7% inflation that goes into June of next year, I mean, that's, I don't know. I so so, so let's, let's, let's continue to explore that though, right? Because the question for me is not actually like, it, again, it boils down to does it just matter that you identify somebody as sick or do you actually identify? And we can close the poll now. So the, the conclusion was the majority of people came to the five to 7% range. I actually think that that's probably pretty indicative of where expectations are. If we look at one year forward expectations, they're exactly in the middle of that at 6%. The point that I would make, Harley, is I think that, that, that we will surprise to the downside by the time we get to that January point. I, so can I can't I possibly it? know that, but- yeah. So let me make a comment about that. Um, the first six months of this year, <coughs> inflation is already 6.1%. We've already got that done. Uh, if you believe the, the Cleveland Fed has a now cast for inflation, their, June, uh, their July inflation now cast as of this morning is a 0.4 for July. That will remember now, July, the five right now. Right. But also we had a 0.5 in July of last year. So we're going to drop a 0.5 for a 0.4. So we'll probably just see a downtick from 9.1 to 8.9 or 9, if that is indeed the case. And typically in the last few months, the Cleveland Fed's nowcast has been undershooting the inflation rate. If you go with that, we will have at the end of July already done for the year, 6.4, 6.5% inflation. So and part, so you could, what, yeah. you'll have ahead, to I'm put sorry. zero for the rest of the year in basically in order to, in order to keep it under 7%. That's what I was going to say. Right. But when we quote the CPI for the December release, we're going to be looking at an annualized number, not the statement as to what is the historical trailing. On, on the historical trailing, I 100% agree with the math that you're articulating, right? But when we're actually looking at an inflation, we're attempting to do it from a forward-looking standpoint, we'd have to flip that around and say that the Cleveland nowcast is suggesting something closer to 5%. And exactly to your point, by the way, the reason why we see these systems, these nowcasting systems, they tend to under-report extreme moves in either direction because they're relying on linear regressions. And by definition, linear regressions do not do a good job of incorporating extreme data or particularly making extreme forecasts, right? Nor do they do a good job of capturing turning points, which is why you rely on modifications to a lot of those tools. But when we, when we actually look at what is underway right now, the question becomes, how do we actually sustain a significantly higher rate of inflation, which would mean that next year, oil prices have to be a lot higher, right? That natural gas prices have to be not only above the current levels, but significantly higher in a go forward period, because those have been the primary drivers of inflation. Now we could see it spread through the economy. We could see components of wages continue to rise. But if anything, what the Fed is actually doing is setting conditions under which we're beginning to see things like continuing claims are rising. Initial jobless claims are rising fairly significantly. And we talked about this component of, of are they going to declare a recession? The technical definition, as Jim points out, is under the NBER, it has, you know, 
two quarters of negative GDP growth are a contributor, you're also supposed to have a peak in industrial production. We have not seen anything remotely like that. A component of it is also changes in jobs. They tend to use non-farm payrolls. What we're seeing right now is actually quite interesting, where the household employment has failed to grow now for four months. All right, so what we've seen is a transition into the corporate sector, while overall employment has actually been remarkably weak. So I, right. you know, the quick answer is, I don't know, right? We're seeing so many pieces that are moving in play. I can't possibly know exactly what's going to happen over the next six months. I can't tell you what stimulus is going to come through from California or Massachusetts or anywhere else, right? But what we are looking at is conditions under which the average American can buy fewer units of things than they bought last year. And, and that's that a, a, that's a dramatic change. Yes, I was going to say that is, not only is that a dramatic change, but it is really showing up. I mean, if you look at the political polling right now, I mean, the president's approval rating is, is horrific. Congress's approval rating is horrific. And that a lot of that is <clears throat> when you ask people, what is the number one issue in the country? It is inflation followed by the economy and a distant echo might be guns, abortion, climate change. Right now, that's all that they really care about is those issues. Um, and that is good. That is really driving a lot of the thinking um, for, for everybody. And that is a worrisome thing too, because when President Biden had Paul to the White House a month ago, and he basically pointed at him and said, the job to bring in inflation is the Federal Reserves and I won't get in their way, basically ordered him is that he's going to have to do something about it. And that is going to be, and I think Paul is definitely taking that approach. But to your point now about the, um, the, the strong like uh, uh, industrial production numbers and everything else, I'll, I'll throw this back a question to you. Are we in a period now where bad news or good news is bad news? Because if we continue to print 370,000 jobs, if industrial production doesn't show a peak, does the Fed look at this and say, oh, good, now we can go 100. Oh, good, now we can go another 75. We could just keep going because there isn't any pain. The Fed says they've got the resolve to rein inflation in. I think they do, but I'll also, open, I'll also be open-minded enough to say, it's easy to say I've got the resolve to be restrictive in policy, hawkish in policy, when we're producing 370,000 jobs a month. Ask him again if the payroll report is minus 80,000 jobs and see, what kind, see if he gives you the same answer that he's giving you right now. Ask him again if the S&P is 35 or 30 percent off of its high, not 20% off its high. Let's see if Paul gives us the same answer that he's giving us right now. So when I look at strong numbers like the payroll report, the first thing I said when the payroll report came out was, oh good, now we can start talking about a 100 basis point hike. And that's exactly what we got in the market right now. Earlier today, it was above 50% chance priced in that the Fed would move 100 basis points at the July meeting. <clears throat> then uh, Governor Waller came out and said he backed 75, and it dipped down to like 44%. Uh, but it's still definitely in the running. Jim, yeah. if, you, if you were to put a number on things, what do you think the, the, the peak Fed funds rate will be? Can we get 10, can 10s ever print a four handle? And in theory, what's the bottom spooze number? If you're, I mean, if you have opinions on those. Yeah, so um, I'll start with interest rates. 349 on June 16th was the high yield on the 10-year note for this year. Um, I Initially, I didn't think that that was going to be the high of the year, but the curve's inverted. 
If the curve stays inverted, I think 349 is the high. We're not going to go above it. If we are going to go to a 4% handle on the 10s, I think we're going to have to uninvert the curve. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a big parallel shift up while the curve is inverted all the way to 4%. Uninverting the curve and having uh, the 10s go to 4 I think is a signal that the market is worried about inflation being a bigger problem than we think it is. The inverted curve, I think, is a market signal saying they're going to break things badly and they're going to have a recession. And that's why the curve is inverted. So I do think that um, it's not necessarily a bullish thing from, the, from an economic standpoint, if the curve wants to stay inverted and we can't take out 349, oh, we'll probably, you know, make a run at it once or twice more, you know, get above 330 again, maybe even above 340 again. But, you know, if you were to ask me, what would it take to get to 375? First, uninvert the curve. You think you would get be, four and a half in funds rate then? Um, you, you could get a four and a half in the funds rate, but I think you'll severely, you'll keep the curve severely inverted. Look yeah. at the rate we're going now. The highest point in the curve is the two-year note at 323 um, right now. If, if the Fed moves 100 in July, and that's a real possibility, and the market also said, the market is also pricing in a 50% chance that if they move 100, they move another 75 in September, You'll have a 325 to 350 funds rate by September 21st, a little more than two months from now. That would be the highest point on the yield curve, unless you see some massive parallel shift higher in the curve. And I don't think you necessarily would, because the terminal rate is in January. That once you do 175, then even two's funds will start to invert. And that is a signal we're close to the end of the cycle. But close to the end of the cycle is an oh, good. Um, you know, it's almost over. It's, man, we broke a lot of shit is basically what the market is telling you. On the stock market, can I, I'll, I'll answer the question by giving you a, a, a quick antidote off into the crypto market. Um, my avatar on Twitter is blue laser eyes. I cannot tell you the vitriol that I get because of that, the DMs I get. I am wrecking my career because I got blue laser eyes on my avatar. That is capitulation. When you should be embarrassed to be associated with something, that is capitulation. And we are very close to capitulation, if not in it with crypto. Stock market's nowhere near that right now. Well, now, Jim, so to be fair, I, I castigated you for that a year ago. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's true. You did. Uh, but boy, you, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe the vitriol. You know, like I said, I'm ruining my, my, my Twitter avatar is going to be the downfall of my career. If, if it makes you feel any better, I would actually offer some condolences to you because I received those messages a year ago. And now I'm starting to receive the messages saying, wow, it must feel good to be right. All right now. I, there's no joy in that whatsoever. I just want to be really, really clear. And I actually look at those messages and I increasingly respond to them with, this is not over yet. You do understand that, right? Bitcoin may be dead, but uh, you know that's a debate that we'll find out in three or four years. That actually prevents, presents us with a phenomenal opportunity to transition here. I, you know, I, I think the interesting thing about what we've heard so far, Jim, is, is that you're actually probably somewhere in between Harley and I, where you're saying, look, it's, I'll call it inflation, but it's really about a relative price dynamic that is signaling to us that we need to change the way we're structuring the economy. 
I actually agree with those statements. And I actually think that's, if we are going to see persistently high prices, it's going to be because we begin taking that seriously. We begin excising China from the supply chain, for example. I think what Harley and I are, are both talking about on the demographic side, or what I would emphasize on the demographic side, is unlike the 1970s, we just don't have anywhere anything like the significant outward shift in the aggregate demand curve that was simply a function of population growth. Right? We just don't have anything remotely resembling that. And I often remind people that the 1970s had the fastest job growth of any decade in history. To point to that decade and say that it's about stagflation is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what actually transpired. And my fear is that Powell has that deep misunderstanding. He thinks he's repeating the victory steps of Volcker. Whereas if you actually go back and read Volcker's own testimony, the written notes from the early 1980s, he was flipping out at Roos in the St. Louis Fed and saying, you're a moron with this monetarist crap, right? What he did was he tried to fix money supply and allowed interest rates to vacillate. He didn't go after interest rates and the desire to hike to kill inflation. Let's transition to something that may help fix some of this. You're one of the biggest traditional finance proponents of decentralized finance. What the hell are you thinking? <laughs> That's a good question. So let me start with um, uh, let me start with a statistic. There's 11 sectors in the S and P 500 uh, since 2007. The peak in 2007, before the Great Recession, the sector that has had the worst performance of those 11 has been the financial sector. And within the financial sector, the biggest industry group is the banks, and they've even underperformed the financial sector. It has been a killing field to basically own financials. Uh, you know, my favorite line on that is that the financials have been basically JP Morgan and various levels of suck is, is what they've been for the last 15 years. Uh, there's a market signal there that this, that this sector of the economy, the financial system, is ripe for disruption. That disruption is not going to come from, the, from this financial system itself. It is too entrenched. It is too bureaucratic. It is too big. It is too slow moving. There's too many rent seekers. It's too expensive. So we need to see a change in the financial system. I think that that has been very clear for a number of years in the marketplace. Now comes decentralized finance. And it offers the promise of a system that could wind up putting out the idea of private sector money. Now, let me be clear. It has done a lot of good things in the progression of decentralized finance, but it's not all the way there. And it is not, and it still has some issues it's got to work out. If you look at pure decentralized finance, and I want to try and separate that from the Celsius, the three arrow capitals, the Voyager digitals that are having all the problems. Those are centralized. Those are unregulated banks is what they are. And also I want to put the FTXs and the Coinbase's and the Gemini's you know, those are centralized exchanges. But if you look at the Curve Financial or the Uniswaps, the, <coughs> the compounds, the Aves of the world, these are the lending and borrowing, pro the pure lending and borrowing protocols that are on chain. You can see what they're doing. These are the automatic market makers, whether you're talking about stable coins with Curve or you're talking about anything with Uniswap. These systems are extraordinary in the way that they work. They are, they work, they don't seem to have any problems. We don't like the prices that they're offering us, 
but they're also not giving us issues like some of the centralized financial systems are. And they offer the hope of private sector type of money. And that is where I have been a big fan of. I think that that is the next level we go because at the same time that they've been pushing off into doing private sector money, you've seen more and more restrictions on you know, basically the current financial system. Whether you're talking about the Canadian truckers or you're talking about the freezing of the central bank of Russia's account after the, after the invasion, you may argue that these are appropriate things because you don't like these groups or those groups, but we're giving governments an extraordinary amount of power to run roughshod over everybody's life. Or as I like to say, everybody listening to this call, all of us, our net worths are zero. What we have is we have a promise from a financial institution that part of their net worth, they will allow us to use because they got a ledger that says of the assets in this bank, they'll let me use some of it, they'll let you use some of it based on some proportions of what we've contributed and what they've given us an interest in the like. And yet what we've also seen is a big push to try and regulate the use of money, whether or not you're allowed to buy certain things with it, contribute to certain people. And I think that we're ready for that type of system. And finally, the, the system of remittances to send money to overseas, to send money back and forth, that system, it, that's, this is a 150 year old system that we've, we updated with technology in the 1970s that just doesn't meet the digital world's, what we need in the digital world. So when I've looked at decentralized finance, I see the future of money and I see the future, uh, 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 I see the future of the financial system. I also wanna emphasize the word future. It is not quite ready for prime time, but every day it seems to be moving closer and closer. So that's my pitch for decentralized finance. Automatic market makers is a wonderful technological achievement, whether you're talking about Uniswap or you're talking about Curve. The borrowing and lending that you could do on a compound or an Aave, where you basically can lend out and you, you share in the proceeds of a liquidity pool, which is what your interest rate is, without it being some kind of opaque, uh, um, you know, uh, levered play like you had with a Celsius or a Voyager Digital is, is a very interesting alternative. And it's all run by computer program. There's no middleman in the middle and it's all on chain, meaning you can go and you can see exactly what is happening. So there's no secrets with it. It is an innovative, uh, it is innovative. And that's why I've been a big fan of it and think that, you know, yeah, there's some problems with it. There was way too much leverage. There was way too much speculation, but that is being wrung out of the system. If it's not all the way out, it's probably close. We might, we might still have a little bit more downside to go with it, <clears throat> but uh, we're still running through another crypto winter. Uh, last thing I'll mention to you, I tweeted this out you know, about a month ago or so. Every technological boom has been associated with some type of speculative boom and bust. And the crypto one is no different. Uh, there was a great story that was making the rounds a few months ago that in, from 1895 to 1900, one third of the companies listed on the London Stock Exchange had the name bicycle in them. That was as golden as the word crypto or blockchain is today. There were shell companies, we might call SPACs today, being issued 
just with the word bicycle. And people were snapping these things up left and right. By 1900, over half of them went bust. And it turned out to be a big killing field for investors to speculate in bicycles. Same thing happened with the telephone before that, telegraph before that, subsequent to that. Same thing happened with radio, with color television, with um, eventually then with the, with the internet and with mobile phones. What we're seeing with crypto in the spectacular booms and busts is not unusual for a new technology. What might be unusual is the accessibility of it. You know, you had to have been kind of somewhat in the know in 1895 to have the means to, you know, you know, invest in some fraudulent bicycle company. But in 2022, anybody with electricity and a phone could have got sucked into the crypto mania. That might be a little bit different, but the basic premise of it is very similar. So, so it's, there's, it's, my, there's my yeah. elevator pitch, a little bit well, long elevator. No, no. So yes, it's definitely long for an elevator, but I actually thought you did a wonderful job of giving a tour of many aspects of it. So again, I think this is one of these interesting things where you know, the world of 140 characters on Twitter, I think unfortunately has shortened our attention spans and our communication ability such that we basically boil people down into are you a you know, crypto specialist or a crypto proponent or are you a hater? Right now, obviously, I would fall into the category of those who are labeled as haters. But what you described is functionally just a new financial system, a new banking system, right? And we have private money. We absolutely have private money. It's distributed by franchisees of the banking system of the Federal Reserve. That's what banks are. They are licensed franchisees of McDonald's, who has the right to make a particular type of money that we call Big Macs. Right? There's no difference between that and the US dollar. That is how a banking system works. What I believe you're describing is you're saying that system has become so ossified and so consolidated and so unfit for many of the purposes that it's described for that one, it's not actually doing well financially in terms of the rewards associated with the stock market. And the second component is, is it's not really serving the needs of our society. Yes, and I would, you know, you know, let me emphasize on the needs of our society. You know, one of the things about a digital world, what we're finding is we need a faster, more encompassing payment system. There's no reason why we should be paying monthly subscriptions for anything. We should be able to connect to an, an Amazon, I'm um, excuse me, to a, a Netflix or an Amazon Prime. And you should be charged, you know, a couple of cents a minute to use it. And as long as you're using it, they just, the meter keeps running and they take money out of your account. We don't have a financial system that can handle that. And we're not building a financial system that can handle that. But in the crypto space, they are attempting to build exactly that. Now, they're not there yet, but there is either when you talk about the Lightning Network on Bitcoin, or if you're talking about you know, the merge that's coming with Ethereum going to proof of stake and some of the level twos or layer twos uh, um, on it, there are, they are trying to do exactly that for those exact purposes. And that is what we're going to need in the digital world is we're going to need a new type of financial system. The ossified old system that we put together over a hundred years ago served us well for many decades, but it isn't serving us well anymore. And then you throw onto it, yeah, the, 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 we do have private money through the central bank, but then we've got the heavy hand of a multitude of acronym regulators that step in and decide what you can and cannot do with your money. I, I personally thought it was a watershed event. I know it's not this country, but when they came out in Canada 
And they said that um, they declared an emergency. And then they declared a thing called a retroactive law. And they said that if you gave money to the Canadian truckers a month ago, and it was perfectly legal to do it a month ago, today we decided it's not. And we're going to go back a month ago and we're going to punish you for giving them money by freezing your bank account. If that's the road we're going down, then the current system is completely unacceptable. I think and people are going to find that that system is unacceptable. So I think that's, I, again, I think that's very well spoken. I completely am sympathetic to those views. I think the challenge has been, there's been such a failure of communication between the two camps. You have the DeFi and crypto community that is functionally screaming, we want to have private money. We want to do this without actually fully understanding that the system that we have actually has private money. It's just done through a franchise and we call it the dollar. We can accomplish the same thing far more efficiently using some of the tools of decentralized finance and the informal relationships that emerge under that decentralized framework because it has its own characteristics of validating and, and verifying that are radically different than what you have when you have a, an entry into JP Morgan's ledger, for example, right? So I, I'm actually really, really sympathetic to that. I think, unfortunately, as you point out, this is absolutely the future. And unlike the general purpose technology investments that were made in the late 1990s, in which a fiber that is buried underground can be used by almost anyone, many of the investments, and I would highlight Bitcoin, which as you know, I have a particular complaint against, you know, Bitcoin has chosen to pursue a path in which all the hardware that is put in place, everything that is being done in Bitcoin is not useful across blockchains, right? The ASICs that are being deployed in the mining, et cetera, can only be used for Bitcoin, right? That's setting up the potential for a fantastic loss of invested capital for a, set, for a system that really just doesn't work. Now, you and I can disagree on that, but we'll see where it plays out. In the meantime, we've managed to argue our way through yet another kiss. <laughs> Harley still doesn't understand inflation. And we're getting to the point where Eric to take over because my battery is about to die on my laptop. <laughs> so I will plead out and let Eric take over. Thank you everyone for joining us again. This is absolutely, that was such an honor to have Jim come on and to, to have the chance to sit down with people I truly care about. I know people think that Harley and I fight all the time, but the reality is we're an old married couple. It's like the odd couple in, uh, in, in with uh, Jack Krugman and whatever his name was. Um, Tony Randall. And there you go. Thank you, Tony Randall. Um, so I'll Which let you take Felix? it away, Eric. Oh, oh, absolutely. Harley is Felix. <laughs> awesome guys. Well, this was great. Thank you everyone for joining for those interested in learning more about Jim and what he's doing. Check him out on Twitter at Bianco research, and you can find his team's work at Bianco research.com. Join us again next month. We're going to host Charlie McGarrick from Altus Partners, and we'll be talking about commodities and managed future strategies. So with that, everyone have a great rest of your evening. Simplify Asset Management, Inc. is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Simplify Asset Management, Inc. and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. SEC registration does not constitute an endorsement of the firm by the commission, nor does it indicate that the advisor has attained a particular level of skill or ability. Be sure to first consult with a qualified financial advisor and or tax professional before implementing any strategy. This website and information are not intended to provide investment, tax, or legal advice. This content is solely for information 
informational purposes and does not intend to make an offer or solicitation for the sale or purchase of any specific securities, investments, or investment strategies. These materials are made available on an as-is basis without representation or warranty. The information contained in these materials has been obtained from sources that Simplify Asset Management Inc. believes to be reliable, but accuracy and completeness are not guaranteed. This information is only current as of the date indicated and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. Neither the author nor Simplify Asset Management Inc. undertakes to advise you of any changes in the views expressed herein. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. Investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Unless otherwise noted, any performance returns presented in these materials reflect hypothetical performance. Hypothetical strategies and indices presented are unmanaged, do not reflect any fees, expenses, transaction costs, commissions, or taxes, and one cannot invest directly in any of these. The results presented should not be viewed as indicative of the advisor's skill and do not reflect the performance results that were achieved by any particular client. During this period, the advisor was not providing advice using this model, and clients' results may have been materially different. Hypothetical model results have many inherent limitations, some of which, but not all, are described herein. One of the limitations of hypothetical performance results is that they are generally prepared with the benefit of hindsight. In addition, hypothetical trading does not involve financial risk, and no hypothetical trading record can completely account for the impact of financial risk in actual trading.